So we have two um, wonderful speakers this morning. First up, I'll um, introduce Lorena Allam, who's coming up now. Lorena Allam is from the Gamilaroi Yawalai peoples of northwest New South Wales. Lorena has worked in the media for 27 years, including as an investigative journalist and editor for the ABC and the BBC. She's presented and produced many ABC Radio National programs, including Away, Background Briefing and Hindsight. Lorena has also worked in print, writing for a range of history and social justice publications. She's most proud of her contribution to the Bringing Them Home inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families. She's currently the Guardian's Indigenous Affairs Editor, and many of you would know that just this week, Lorena and the Guardian Australia's Deaths Inside project um, which has tracked Indigenous deaths in custody since 2008. Just this week, uh, that project has won the Innovation Award at the 63rd Walkley Awards for Excellence in Journalism. The Deaths Inside project showed that since the Royal Commission, um, the landmark Royal Commission, released its 339 recommendations in 1991, there have been 407 Indigenous deaths in custody in Australia. So we're very um, excited to hear from uh, Lorena. Um, I'll introduce Summer at the same time and then um, we'll, we'll hear the presentations and we might do the two presentations and then um, discussion combined. Would that be all right? Yep. Thank you. Um, okay, and our second speaker, Summer May Finlay. Summer May Finlay is a Yorta Yorta woman who grew up in Lake Macquarie near Newcastle. Summer has extensive experience in social marketing, social media, communications and Aboriginal health research and policy. She currently works for croaky.org in a number of capacities, including as a contributing editor and formerly as a member of the um, uh, hashtag IH May Day, Just Justice and Just Climate projects, and has reported for the Croaky Conference News Service, which includes live tweeting. She also writes for NITV and has written for The Guardian Australia and Indigenous X. Summer is currently undertaking a PhD at the University of South Australia, has a Master of Public Health Advanced from the University of Wollongong and a Bachelor of Social Sciences from Macquarie University. And those of you who are using the conference hashtag politics of listening to 018 will know that you can follow Summer on Twitter. She's already live tweeting, which is wonderful. Um, uh, find her on Twitter at, at on topic Oz. <laughs> at Summer May Finlay. <laughs> um, so um, we'll hear presentations from Lorena and from um, Summer and then there'll be time for a little discussion. Thank you so much. Um, so thanks everyone. I'd like to pay my respects to the Bidjigal Gadigal people and thank them for allowing us to live and work on their beautiful country and pay my respects to all the other First Nations people here today. Um, as Tanya said, I'm the Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia now. Uh, I am descended from the Gamilaroi and Yulurai Nations of far northwest New South Wales. And I've worked in the media for almost 30 years. And for a very long time until quite recently, I was working at the ABC as a radio feature maker and producer, um, mostly specialising in the last several years in uh, history documentaries, which was my, still my favourite thing to do. Um, over that time, I learned a lot by watching the way that other radio feature makers told stories uh, and they really helped me to think really deeply about the techniques we use to attract listeners and to help people remain open to hearing new ideas, even if they're about very old stories. 
and I think mostly for uh, the audiences I was talking to at the, at the ABC, these can be very confronting ideas for people to come to terms with and really challenge their accepted views about Australian history. Um, it, in an, it's very, very important work to do. And I say hopefully because you're never certain if what you're saying is what people are actually hearing. And, uh, you know, you, you do hope, though, that listeners might learn something new and be a bit more enlightened about the country that they live and work in. So today, as Megan said earlier in that fantastic summary, I really want a transcript of that because every time I write about constitutional recognition, I need to go back and, uh, and you know, learn all over again. It's an incredibly complex area to, to understand. Um, the latest in a long line of reports about constitutional recognition is coming out later today. And you sort of wonder, will it be finally an example of us as a nation making a commitment at least to listen to what First Nations people are saying? I mean, the Uluru Statement, as Megan said, is a powerful message, but it's not new. It's the sort of thing that Aboriginal people have been saying over and over for decades. Um, its essence has not changed. I mean, the, the, it, it will not change. Um, the politics, of course, change, and opinion can often be a distraction from the point of the, the meaning, which is that this is our country. We have never ceded it. It was settled by violent means, and First Nations people continue to suffer, not just from the unresolved trauma of that violent settlement, but from the ongoing torment of the present. We, as Australians, have unfinished business, which needs to be put right by all of us. And until we do that, we can only pretend to be a mature nation. That's the message. But who is listening? Who, who do we think is listening? How do we know if they really hear us? And is it even our job as First Nations media makers to make them hear us? I mean, those are questions that we think about all the time in the, in the way that we go about our work. So in the audio feature maker's bag of tricks, there are lots of ways to encourage people to listen, lots of ways to create soundscapes and use cinematic techniques to create mood with sound and music, um, the right presenter, the right choice of words, you know, to elicit emotion and get people feeling things. And that's often the, the best way to open someone's ears. Um, it's a great medium audio, it's a very honest medium because you, when you're stripped of the visual distractions there's just the voice and the ear. You've got a direct connection to somebody's mind. And uh, people are really good at hearing fakes anyway. It's almost an instinctive thing to be able to hear insincerity. Um, you've all heard it every time if you watch Q&A, you know, when you're hearing, <laughs> you know, the line. Audio is a, a very intimate medium. As I said, you're talking to somebody just in their ear. But there's two, I mean, the, the sort of explosion of podcasting is almost the opposite of radio in, in some ways. Because as, radio, as a radio presenter, you're trained to talk into a microphone. You're broadcasting, but you're trained to talk to just one other person. That's the way that you, you are best received uh, in someone's ear. You don't talk over someone or down to someone, you talk to them. And, and you're, you're taught to imagine who that person is. Is it your mate? You're telling a story to a friend. That's the sort of tone that, that, that most resonates with listeners. Um, and it's intimate. So it means you have access to people in a very unique way. So, and especially with podcasting, people are opting in. They're choosing to hear you. So it's a, it's a different relationship in a way. Um, and, but it's ultimately one that you can't take for granted and it's a rare thing to have someone listen to you. So it's a great responsibility, you don't want to stuff it up. 
and you don't want to waste it with trivia or polemic or misrepresentation. So as First Nations media producers, we have a tremendous responsibility to... It doesn't mean we, we compromise a message to suit the listener. It just means being really careful about what we deliver and how. Um, and it means we have a big responsibility to our own communities to make sure that their voices are represented in the, and heard in the way they want to be heard and represented. It means people being able to use their own first languages where they choose to, rather than be forced to use English. Um, it means that they can speak English in a way that they prefer, rather than the way that, um, that uh, consumers of media would prefer they talk. So, I mean, I think a good example might be where you hear an Aboriginal person speaking Aboriginal English or Creole, and you'll see or hear subtitles over what they're saying. I, I, I object to that in principle um, because I think that the importance of listening is to really make an effort. You know, we, we, we listen to people with French accents or German accents and, and we, you know, we make that effort. So you should make that effort with Aboriginal people speaking English too. And it also includes how First Nations people decide what stories they want told and how and why and when in their own time, not in response to someone else's agenda or timeline. I think a lot of the work that, that I've done has taken time because people need time to, to decide how they want to participate and Deaths Inside is a really good example of that. So I'll, I'll get to that quickly in, in a sec. So at the ABC I made lots of audio about all sorts of issues, language, culture, theatre, the arts, history, repatriation, the stolen generations. Um, and it had, had you know, an ABC audience. Um, it also, a lot of the stuff that we do was rebroadcast on the National Indigenous Radio Service as well. So we kind of serve that double purpose, which has always been fantastic. But then after Easter, I joined Guardian Australia and um, I found a very different audience, one which listens very differently. And their listening is having an impact in very immediate and very political ways. So um, one of the first ever reporting jobs I did as a cadet was to go out to Walgut on a very wonky twin-engine Cessna with the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. And we went to hear the story of Clary Neen, who died at Walgut Police Station. Um, and in the course of hearing his story, we found out he was from Kinchilla Boys Home. He was a member of the Stolen Generation. And having survived Kinchilla is an incredible thing, given how horrific that place was that we came to find out later during the Stolen Generations inquiry. And so I'd, if there's anyone here who's lost a loved one in that way, I'd like to pay my respects and acknowledge that this is difficult and challenging to talk about, because revisiting the issue of deaths in custody 30 years on is dispiriting, to say the least. Um, the things I was reporting on as a young cadet haven't changed a huge amount, even though there's been a Royal Commission with 339 recommendations. So it goes to the heart of this concept of listening. 30 years of an unchanged message. Is it being heard? So we weren't sure that it was. So we created this database um, and the reporting that flowed from it was because um, it sort of came out of the death of Miss Dew at South Headland Lockup. My colleague, Calla Walquist, was attending the coronial inquest and she thought, how many people have died in custody since the Royal Commission? And we found it impossible to find out. We just couldn't find the numbers. So um, we contacted state and territory jurisdictions for corrections and police. We couldn't find, they didn't have the time or resources to keep the numbers. They just aren't tracking it. So that was the first flag that went up. 
And we realised that to get an up-to-date figure, we would have to do that work. So what we did was we tracked uh, coronial findings from every jurisdiction, um, and we tracked media reports and press releases as well, because what we know is that, and we monitored social media, because what we know is that corrections don't tell you when one of our mob dies in custody, you've got to go and ask. It's not something that they, they'll verify the report, but they won't volunteer the information. So from May to August, we sat, the, the team of us, there's four of us, who read, and we read every coronial finding relating to an Indigenous death in custody for the last 10 years. We had ambitiously and naively thought we could do every one from the end of the Royal Commission, but it's quickly realised it was an impossible task. And also because a lot of those reports aren't available publicly. There's a lot of stuff online now from about 2000 onwards, but before that, coronial reports are in you know, dusty files, literally. So we, we covered that, but we also covered five years from 2010 to 2015 of all deaths in custody to have a kind of comparative uh, figure to look at, sort of a meaningful sized figure. So we had 463 cases, 147 of them concerned an Indigenous person. And we used certain data points that coroners themselves had identified as being significant in deaths of people in custody, particularly from Miss Do, but also then we included things from other deaths that we knew had had an impact, like David Dungay Jr. here in, in New South Wales, Mr Ward in WA and Kumajai Langdon in the NT. And I mean, we're not criminologists, so our, we, <laughs> our job is not to just give more statistics. We really wanted to tell the human story behind all those numbers because we found what we knew was that these sort of violent institutional deaths play havoc in families and we wanted to, we wanted to find a way to, to have people really take notice of that and to... Um, honour those family stories and what they were going through, because they haven't done anything wrong. They've been thrust into this system um, and having to make sense of it all on their own. So I, I could go through some of the stories that have come out, but I think at this point, I'd, I don't know if anyone's had a look at this, but this is the... OK, so this is the opening. With this, we found it very important to give a warning to people. Originally, when we... We envisaged the project, we wanted it to be like um, the Counted was in the US, which was uh, a database tracking all poli extrajudicial police shootings in the US. And, but, it, but what it had was a big face wall, which, which was just far too confronting for our mob. So we have a different process. It's, it's buried, so it's an opt-in process for the warning, and you click through. But here is our database. So... Each person is represented by a square, um, and again, you click through for more information. So here's Mr Ward. Um, so these are the data points we compiled about each and every person, and you can find out more information. We've included all the coronial reports that were publicly available as well. So it's, it, once we started, we realised this was a resource that governments um, should provide, or could provide, but um, the more we looked, the more, <coughs> the more um, important things we saw. So we looked at cause of death. These in themselves, I mean, there's much more research and reporting to come out of this now because we need to drill down even further because where somebody has died, we've said of medical, a medical episode or medical causes, there's, there are lots of stories just in that one, that one entry. 
one thing we didn't track for was coroner's recommendations. Um, the, and, and, but anecdotally, the number of reports we read, the number of times coroners <coughs> expressed real frustration that previous recommendations hadn't been adhered to. So even coroners were saying they're not being listened to either. And the, the coronial system varies from state to state, but ultimately coroners make recommendations. There's no compulsion on the state to amend their processes and procedures, unless, of course, public attention and um, pressure is brought to bear. So in the case of David Dungate Jr. here in New South Wales, who died um, after being restrained by prison guards at Long Bay Jail, um, they said they didn't know anything about the dangers of positional asphyxia. A lot of other jurisdictions, police and corrections around Australia have, are taught what the signs are. They hadn't been doing that in New South Wales. So last year, almost two years after he died, um, the state is now giving training to corrections officers in positional asphyxia and what to look for. I mean, in his case, he was saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, like Eric Garner on the street in New York, um, that's a sign. Um, you can talk and not be able to breathe. Um, they were pressing down on his chest, so he was able to... Uh, the, he was struggling, so they were saying, stop struggling. The struggling is a physical reaction to impending cardiac arrest. So now, because people have, have, because of this work, I guess, and other work that we've done around the, with working with the Dungay family, there have been some changes to the way the system does things. But this is, this is how you get it to listen. So all those beautiful radio documentaries that we made um, have a different listenership. But this stuff, and I know it's a very visual I think in the kind of in the online space, this is this is how we reach people. Um, we chose the colours. We chose Charlotte Allingham, our designer, did all these uh, beautiful images for us that change as you go through the database. Let's so do this, Jaden. Um, we wanted people to be visually uh, and, and hopefully have some sort of emotional reaction. So it, it had a dual purpose. It wasn't just a database. It was a. It, we wanted it to look beautiful as well as be informative, and there are some horrendous stories in there. I don't know if I've got time to just just go through what we found. I mean, just extreme systemic neglect. Um, there was one woman whose story really stuck with me. She was transferred to Townsville Jail. She had a chronic injury from a car accident and a tooth abscess when she was. Um, came to the jail. Um, her medical records hadn't come with her, so the, the, the guards thought she was pretending. She was just trying to get hold of um, um, painkillers. They odd, and from time to time gave her some Panadol, but they didn't believe she was in pain relief, need of pain relief. Six weeks after transfer, she took her own life. And the coroner said that pain was a contributing factor in her despair during her final weeks. We heard the story of an Aboriginal man who had to... He was having a heart attack and was made to walk to the guard station to be administered oxygen. Another Aboriginal man died of heart disease lying on a concrete bench in the watch house. He was not charged with anything. The coroner said in that he was made to... Um, he died in the police cell to, hold, to house criminals. He was entitled to die as a free man. Well, we wondered why he needed to die at all. He should never have been there. Um, prisoners who were at risk of self-harm, known risk of self-harm, were placed in cells alone or not placed, um, placed in cells with hanging points. 
30 years on. So there's systemic issues that continue to happen. Um, we also found you know, more than half the people who died in custody since 2008 hadn't been convicted of any crime. They were either on remand or um, uh, being picked up by police, you know, for um, just picked up by police, they'd never been charged. Uh, whereas for non-Indigenous people, more than half were serving a prison sentence. Um, Indigenous people are by far more likely to die in custody from treatable medical conditions and often come into prisons much sicker than others, so that being in the prison with the lack of care, those, uh, those complex medical uh, conditions are exacerbated. Women receive far worse treatment than men and that agencies weren't following their own procedures in 34% of cases where Indigenous people have died. Uh, that mental health, particularly in cognitive impairment, was a factor in 41% of all deaths in custody. So that's telling us that all the people who come into contact with the criminal justice system, a lot of them shouldn't be there. They should be receiving treatment in the community. And as Megan mentioned earlier about the IAS, those, those projects that Aboriginal people would run for communities have just dried up. So more and more of our mob are ending up in prisons when they really don't, when they need medical attention. Um, and that the families of pe uh, people who've died are waiting up to three years for a coronial inquest to take place, and then uh, an average of two years for the findings to be handed down. So finding a way to, to pass that message to our readers so they would hear it. I know I'm hearing you sigh, so it's hard to hear it, isn't it? It's, it's not easy to listen to, but we, you know, these people are desperate for you to hear it because they can't change this by themselves. And we as journalists, we're not criminologists, like I said, we're reporters, and our, our job is to um, research and report and inform the Australian people about what's going on in your um, country. So um, they, we, we, can do, we can do what we can do, but ultimately uh, the responsibility is on the listener to, once you've heard these, can you, can you go on as you normally have? Or does it change the way you live in this country? And if it does, how does it? What do you, what do you I mean, for me the question of, being, of listening is, if it, if it provokes, and a reaction in you, how, how do you then change to accommodate that knowledge? And what do you do as an individual and as, as, as a collective? So we worked in a really trauma-informed way, which is, um, it's an interesting balance to have the strike as a news organisation, but we were very, it was very important to us that the families who bought into this project um, were consulted and informed along the way. So these people here whose full names are used, where we see names and images, that's because the family's given us express permission to do that. Um, others are initials. This one's incomplete because um, the uh, coronial inquest hasn't happened yet. Okay. So I just, I think I should let Summer have a, have a, have a talk now, but I just wanted to leave you with these words from Dot West, who the amazing Dot West from Galari Media in Broome, who just received the First Nations Lifetime Achievement Award this week, just gone. She said, it is the power of the word that resonates with me. 
whether it be the power of the word that occurs on stage, whether it occurs on the page, or whether it occurs in your ears through the radio, or whether it's the power of the word that happens on the screen, we have the power to make impact and we cannot let that power fall to the wayside. We've got to give it guts. We've got to give it earth. We've got to give it country. We've got to give it culture and we've got to give it language. We've got to give it everything in order to ensure that the power of the word resonates with everyone that lives in this country and elsewhere about the First Nations people of this country. So, thank you. So before I go on, I'd also like to pay my respects to traditional owners. I no longer work on this country and I love coming back though. Um, it is always beautiful country and I'm, I'm always conscious that this is one of the first areas that was colonised and to be able to talk on this country is a, is a privilege. Um, I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders, past and present, to all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the room, and to everybody else that's here, so thank you for coming. So I am Summer Mae Finlay, I am a Yorta Yorta woman, and I'm a, I think I'm a, an accidental communicator, at least in this form. Um, I am an ex-drama student and ex-drama teacher and I always thought the type of communication would be, I'd be doing is on a stage, telling other people's stories that other people have written. Um, and then I, I, I started actually writing in Year 10 for the school newspaper and, and, and then didn't pick it back up until 2014 when I got angry at Tony Abbott for being an absolute dickhead. And, um, <laughs> wrote a story which uh, Crokey kindly published for me and I have been writing for them ever since. Um, one of the things that I was going to talk about today, I'm going to leave, but I just want to actually say I've used this. I teach uh, at Wollongong University. I teach a third year undergrad subject, the Indigenous Social Determinants of Health. And this has been a really powerful tool. And the things also that um, Megan was talking about, I've used as well for teaching. It's actually really amazing to have these resources that people put together for me then to be able to communicate to my students. Um, one of the reasons why I started writing was because I wasn't often hearing an Indigenous voice. We have it in Indigenous media, but we weren't seeing it in the mainstream media. We weren't seeing it as much as I would have liked. I grew up being surrounded by non-Aboriginal people's voices. And I remember when I did my first, one of my first poems that I performed at a drama at Stedford was Udru Nu Knuckles' A Normal Boomerang. And that was literally the first time I'd actually read something that was written by an Aboriginal author. And it took me a long time to actually come across more works that were actually celebrated from Indigenous authors. And I feel really privileged to be standing up here amongst, you know, two other amazing Aboriginal women because I grew up hearing Aboriginal stories from non-Aboriginal people. When I went to uni, all of the stuff that I heard was taught by non-Aboriginal people except for Anita Heiss, who was fabulous. Um, and I had an Englishwoman give us lectures on Aboriginal stuff and I had an American woman give us lectures on Aboriginal stuff and uh, yet I only had one Aboriginal lecturer which is really quite disappointing. One of the things that I want to say and I know we're talking about the politics of listening and part of the politics of listening is actually understanding where we're coming from. 
A lot of the time when we stand up in front of you or we write a story or we write a poem, we're actually really uncomfortable. Being up here makes us really vulnerable. We're having to tell you a story in a way that is going to be palatable to the audience and predominantly a non-Aboriginal audience. We have to think about how to communicate that story, and you alluded to that. We have to think about how to not piss people off. And sometimes that's really hard. That's really hard. I apparently regularly piss people off, I've been told. And uh, I've had some of my, co my colleagues say that uh, my controversialness waxes and wanes. And I think it depends on how emotional I am on the day and how particular I am being with the words that I choose. And sometimes, sometimes it's really hard to be nice when there is so much crap going on like this. And so for me, when I, I actually wanted to ask before I get into talking about what I'm actually going to talk about and why they asked me here, I was going to ask you to be uncomfortable and be okay with being uncomfortable. Because we stand here being uncomfortable, but we stand here because we know it's really important that people hear from <coughs> Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about our stories in our way. So if you can just be uncomfortable with me and if you're challenged by something, just be challenged by that, that would be fabulous. And then at least I'm not being uncomfortable all up by myself up here. <laughs> so as I said, I was a, an accidental communicator and I am now known for social media, which is an absolute surprise to me because I actually absolutely hated social media. Absolutely hated it. I was dating a guy back in uh, 2012 and he was... You know, he worked in social media, he was well across it, and we used to have absolute barneys about the usefulness and the utility of Twitter, which I, at that stage, was a complete and other doubt doubting Thomas. Does anyone else here not use Twitter and hate it? Yeah, I was one of you, believe it or not, and now I'm absolutely complete convert. Um, and I'm probably like one of those reform, you know, born-again Christian mob who go around spouting how wonderful um, social media is. Um, and so I've worked on a number of projects with Crokey, which is an online platform. Now, I'm going to read to you what Crokey is because there's actually a really good description that I can never remember off the top of my head. And Melissa Sweet wrote it. Now, if you know Melissa Sweet, she is a fabulous communicator. So it's easier if I use her words rather than mine, if I can find them. No, I can't. can't find them. Crokey is an online social journalism news outlet. It started out under Crikey and has now navigated to its own platform. We describe Crokey as a collective of people doing a range of things. So you have people there that are journalists like Melissa Sweet and Mari McInerney who are both amazing mentors and support to me and have given me lots of critical feedback to improve my writing which I'm always grateful for even if it's sometimes I don't like it. Um, and they've used social media to actually promote voices of people. One of the things that I loved about Crokey was that they don't try and change the way you speak, they just help you frame an article. And what I mean by that is they don't try and whitewash it. And I'll give you an example of, of whitewashing which drove me crazy. I did a, an evaluate, I was part of an evaluation for a mainstream, very large organisation. Now we were actually talking to Aboriginal patients about cardiac events. And we were wanting to see whether or not the hospital was culturally appropriate and met their needs. 
In the evaluation report, I had written case studies based on the transcripts of the people that I spoke to. Now, some of the people, most of the people I spoke to, as you were talking about, they don't use English in a way that English teachers would like them to use. They use it in a way that their community uses them. So I decided to use the transcripts because I really wanted, really wanted their voices to be heard. I didn't want to change them because the minute you actually change language, as you guys know, it sometimes changes the meaning completely unintentionally. And I also wanted them to feel like they were represented in a way they were comfortable with. So I sent off my report and I got comments back and from the, uh, the senior management and they had decided to rewrite my case studies in proper English. Their voices were no longer used, their quotes were no longer used, their voices were completely and utterly changed. So one woman had actually had a heart attack while actually standing in an Aboriginal medical service. She knew she was unwell, she didn't like going to hospitals. So she went to the health service, had her heart attack there. They labelled that case study Mrs Lucky. Now, during her interview, I can tell you, she did not feel lucky. So I was, one of the reasons I like croaky is because we don't change people's voice. So I've been involved in two social media campaigns, IHMA Day, which is um, Indigenous Health May Day. That started in 2014 under Lenore Geyer. She is a nurse who now teaches at JCU and she's a wonderful, wonderful elder in our community. And I've also been involved in Just Justice. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about IHMA Day first. So IHMA Day was, is um, an event which happens once a year for a whole day in May. So it runs from 7am to 10pm and the entire programming is actually um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people talking about whatever issues they feel are appropriate underneath the banner of um, the theme that we identify. And the themes are usually loose enough that we're not, you know, restricting what people say. This year we focused on stepping into our future because what we wanted to do is actually get people to hear what our solutions were and what our, our futures were. You know, Megan talked about suspending disbelief, basically, when it came to constitutional recognition. And what we were asking people is to suspend disbelief and say, what is it you want your future to look like? Because if we don't know what we want our futures to look like, how the hell are we ever going to get there? And for me, one of the values of IHMA Day is that non-Indigenous peoples are encouraged to stop, listen, and do nothing else other than retweet. And if you actually start getting a bit, you know, voicey and you start actually having opinions, you'll get people like me coming in DMing you and going, pipe down, this is a day for Aboriginal people, you have 364 days a year, this one's ours. And you know what, that was really challenging for people. A lot of people found it challenging not to have an opinion. We're in a country where everyone is entitled to an opinion and people feel like they're entitled to an opinion all of the time. And quite frankly, when you're only 3% of the population, 97% of the population, when they're entitled to an opinion, and then air that opinion, they actually drowned out our voices. I actually had a gentleman ask me one day, oh, I was sitting in this meeting, and this Aboriginal man got really grumpy at me. All I was trying to do was have a say, la la la. And I ended up having to say to him, here's, a, here's the thing, how many Aboriginal people were in the room? Oh, there was only a couple. How many non-Aboriginal people in the room? Oh, there was, a, there was more. 
I said, and you're having an opinion. Is every other non-Indigenous person in the room having an opinion? Yeah. I think, that, I think he kind of got it when he realised that the non-Indigenous voices generally drowned out our voice, which is one of the reasons why it's really hard to hear us because we're often competing with everybody else. So sometimes it's actually not that people aren't listening, it's just that there's too much noise to listen to. And, you know, I sit here in front of you guys asking sometimes for you guys actually not to have a voice and to actually promote someone else's voice that's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander on our issues. And we know that a lot of people have made their careers off Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health or whatever it is. And we know that those careers have actually helped lay the foundation for people like me to stand up here. But we also ask that now that we're moving towards where we have you know, a surge of young people coming through that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, if you actually genuinely are there for the right reasons, i.e. to support us, we now need you to take a step back. And one of the things we did with Just Justice was actually prioritise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's voices as well. So Just Justice was a campaign and a series of stories, and when I say a series, I mean 90 stories in 18 months, and it was about the over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So what we wanted to do was actually promote solutions around the over-incarceration and move away from the deficit dialogue. Because quite frankly, I believe the deficit dialogue holds its back. Because if all you hear about me is negative stuff as an Aboriginal woman, how are you ever going to stand here and trust anything that I have to say? And also, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are more than the sum of our negative statistics. We're a hell of a lot more, and those strengths are actually what has allowed us to survive and will allow us to continue to survive. And we hopeful, hopefully it's those strengths which are actually going to drive change within our, our society. So Just Justice was, um, as I said, a series of articles, and we ended up publishing a book, an e-book, and we also published a hardcover book. Now, the e-book is available online, and I'd encourage you to download it. Um, we heard from a whole range of people, but one of the things we did with that was even when we had non-Indigenous people write stories, we, used to, we asked them to use a decolonising methodology, and we actually had a range of people review it, including myself and Megan Williams, who works in the space. So Megan used to work here. I don't know if you, some of you know her, but she's now over at UTS. She's fabulous. And uh, we actually made sure that it was going to be a story that would be appropriate for our communities. And that's really unusual for a lot of media, I think. When people write, they expect it to be told in a way that is whatever they want it to be told. But what we wanted it to do was be palatable for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and make sure it wasn't reinforcing negative stereotypes or it wasn't actually doing any harm for us. And that for us was really, really important. And one of the things I wanted to say as well is both IHMA Day and Just Justice had the involvement of non-Aboriginal people in them. And without their involvement, we would not have been able to do the work that we did. It just wouldn't have happened. Um, with Crokey having the platform as a mainstream platform and these amazing journalists, we were able to reach politicians and a whole range of other people that I certainly could never have done by myself. When it came to Just Justice, we had um, Senator Sue Lyons, tweeting about our stuff. We had Rachel Seawitt tweeting about our stuff and promoting it. I've got a photo of um, Ken Wyatt holding our Just Justice book. Now, I could never have gotten into the door of Ken Wyatt's office without Melissa Sweet and the platform she built, Crokey. And I, I, I was one of, I actually, 
I actually was lucky enough to interview him on the day he was sworn in as the first Indigenous minister. And that was by default, because we'd actually had this booked in about three months before, but he didn't want to cancel on us. He just moved it back, and he didn't tell us why he moved it back. And we only really figured it out on the day. So I was pretty excited to have myself and Megan, two Indigenous people, interviewing him on his first day of Indigenous Health Minister. Um, and, the, and what the thing they did that was really good was not just give us a platform, but they actually listened to us. We all played to each other's strengths. They knew that they're not Indigenous, and they knew that if we said no to something, myself and Megan, or, the, or Lenore, then that was a no, because that wasn't appropriate for our communities. And they never actually, their ego never got in the way of that. So Melissa Sweet, as a very experienced journalist, allowed us to veto stuff, which I actually am really grateful for. And in return, we have created these series of stories, which is fantastic. And we also created IHMA Day, which is fantastic. I know we're running out of time, um, and I really just wanted to share some of the, my experiences as a communicator um, and some ways of working for you as maybe non-Indigenous peoples to work with us, and also the importance of our voice. And I think we actually talk about people not hearing. Um, we talk about people not listening to what's said. And I think part of that is because people aren't used to listening in the way we tell a story. People aren't used to listening to what we have to say. But the more we're actually telling our stories our way, it will become the norm. And people will get used to listening to it. And people will actually more likely start to understand what we're saying. Because you're right, people don't often hear what we say. But I hope that through exposure from Indigenous voices, people are more likely to hear what we have to say. So, thank you.